Hello, everybody. We're back again. We're back again, again. <laughs> Nashville Demystified is a show in which I get to know my home better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. In this episode, we're evoking spirits and we're telling old stories. You'll hear about the Bell Witch, sure, but this story, it's not about the Bell Witch. You don't need any more of that. It's been done. It's a tour. It's a movie. It's another movie. It's a documentary. It's a number of different books. It's a number of different episodes of Ghost Hunter or spooky history television series. The Bell Witch has been done. I've been calling this episode the critical race theory read on the Bell Witch that nobody asked for. <laughs> but if the moms for liberty sorts of this world are suggesting that every story needs to be presented with another side, then that's what we're going to do with the old Bell Witch, which has really only been presented as a very one-sided story. This is, after all, a story about a story. I am, by the way, your host, Alex Steed. Hey, how are you doing? It's been a while since we last talked. I just moved to Madison, my friends, and it's so nice to be with y'all from beautiful Madison, Tennessee. If you like Nashville Demystified, I want you to know I've got another show called You Are Good, which I host with my friend Sarah Marshall, who is also the host of another podcast called You're Wrong About. We call You Are Good a feelings podcast about movies. If you want to talk about movies but not get critical, you just want to talk about them, or if you want to talk about feelings but not necessarily talk about them head on, this is the podcast for you. I hope you will check it out. This show, National Demystified, is a part of the We Own This Town network of podcasts, and we are grateful to them. There's a podcast on that very network also called We Own This Town. It's one of my very favorites. It is how I find out about all of the great music coming out of Nashville these days. I hope you'll check that one out too. Nashville Demystified is made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine and Nashville, Tennessee. But it does work throughout these here United States. So if you need that sort of work, Done, made, produced, etc. Get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. So, my favorite thing about the Bell Witch myth is it's largely based on a book that's almost obviously totally a lie. <laughs> I'm not saying it's almost obviously a lie because it's about a witch or because it's about the supernatural, uh, though the evidence of the witch as it's presented in the book is flimsy and very circumstantial and shifts any of number of different times in any of number of different ways. Uh, I'm not saying this because it was written well over a half century, actually much closer to a full century after the phenomenon took place, or because it was based on a manuscript supposedly a family manuscript of the Bells that no one's ever actually seen. I'm saying so because it keeps telling the reader that it can't possibly be a lie. And I have this rule that if you tell me, I don't know, like 10 or 20 times that you're definitely not lying, then I feel like it's a red flag situation. <laughs> Oh, and this is going to be a two-part episode. I'm going to get into some of my favorite Bell Witch stories as told by M.V. Ingram because I believe they are wonderfully written and we'll get into that shortly. And we're going to get into that in a broader way in our next episode. Again, rich stories that aren't just about the Bell Witch itself. But before I get there, I wanted to talk a bit about the Bell Witch itself and its significance as a folktale. 
So like I said, in our next episode, we'll spend some time on how wild the actual stories themselves are. But I wanted to give a bit of background on why I find this story interesting in the first place. It's the frame through which we'll get to know the witch. And I'm going to spoil some stuff right out the gate. M.V. Ingram's book on the Bell Witch is popularly shortened to The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch, though on the title page, a longer alternative is authored, and I love it so much. The Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch, the Wonder of the 19th Century, and Unexplained Phenomenon of the Christian Era, the Mysterious Talking Goblin that Terrorized the West End of Robertson County, Tennessee, Tormenting John Bell to His Death, the Story of Betsy Bell, Her Lover in the Haunting Sphinx. So salacious. I love it so, so much. Supposedly based on a series of interviews conducted between 1891 and 1892, and again, an uncovered manuscript purportedly originating from one of the Bell family members, it was written and published by newspaper man and editor Martin Van Buren Ingram in 1894. I can't, by the way, be the only person who thinks of that episode of Pete and Pete in which little Pete gets a piece of cereal in the shape of Martin Van Buren (laughs) stuck in his nose whenever I hear that name. Can I be the only person who thinks that? If I am not, please let me know about it. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, just know that that is a thing that happened on a kid's show once back in the early 1990s. (laughs) And my God, we're this far in. I should really give you a synopsis of what the actual story is, even though, again, we're doing the whole story about a story thing. But maybe you've missed the tales, the tour, the movies, the documentary, the books, the television series, etc. John and Lucy Bell moved from North Carolina to an area called Barren Plains in Robertson County, Tennessee, at the beginning of the 19th century. This area is now known as Adams. And they brought their family, and they brought their slaves, and they found great success in farming, in the community, and in the church. But much of this good fortune is undone when a haunting targets the family, Betsy and John in particular, and it leads to John's social ruin and eventual death. So going back to what I was saying a short while back about how the shape of the myth was established by Ingram's embellishments, the book goes out of its way on a number of occasions to explain that while these events sound absolutely fantastic, they happen to good people of good stock, and so there's no way it can be a lie. And there are so many things going for it that should lead you to trust it. For real, it's basically like, hi. This is not a lie. Here are all the reasons it can't be a lie. You know murders exist, right? But have you seen a murder? But you know they exist, even though you very likely have not seen a murder. You know because trustworthy people have seen murders. This is an actual argument by Ingram, but put into today's terms, for believing what he had on offer within the confines of the authenticated history. John, Ingram says, was like his fellow incoming migrants, young men of muscle, nerve, honesty of purpose, and a courageous disposition to work, possessed of self-reliance and frugal habits. Again, these are Ingram's words. John's was indeed a happy and prosperous family, as everyone recognized. 
John, though, was not a young man of muscle. I mean, he may have been muscly. He was a farmer. One might presume he was. Uh, But he was a 42-year-old man who married a 12-year-old girl, Lucy. And we'll get to this later as I'm reluctant to ruin a surprise. We'll get to it in this episode, just so you're not on the edge of your seat forever. But John's, quote, honesty of purpose may have also been up for question. Just because the book appears predicated on a series of lies does not mean that it's not worth reading because sometimes the lies themselves and what they say about the teller of the lie are as fascinating as if the lies themselves were true. Or it speaks to what is most interesting about the lie itself. Folk tales belong to people, people. (laughs) But beyond that, they are tales about the folk who tell them. And I should clarify, while the majority of what is known about the Bell Witch comes from the Ingram book, you know there are folks who suggest he made the entire thing up. And I am largely in that camp, though not wholly. There are reports of a spectacle that came before the Ingram book came out towards the middle of the 19th century, supposedly in the Saturday Evening Post that was then reprinted in a Vermont paper a number of years later. Uh, the, I, you know, Just so you know how committed I am to understanding this story, I signed up for a Saturday Evening Post <laughs> subscription that came with, a, with, came with access to the archives. But this piece was written in 1849, and that is not in the archives, unfortunately. I'm going on secondary sourcing here. But my understanding of that piece is that it was suggesting that these claims existed, but I believe that there were questions about the authenticity of said claims within that piece. So it was, I believe, the coverage of this story that existed before Ingram were reporting the story and asking questions about the story. There are also reports of a journal entry belonging to a John Bell that was not the John Bell, but he lived in the area, where he suggests he'd heard of this phenomenon of a girl getting haunted nearby, though he didn't experience them directly. Uh, The details of that story seem to oppose some of the details in the Ingram book, uh, but it matches up with the very, very, very loose outline of what is described as the haunting of the Bell family. I haven't seen either of those sources, I should say. I've only seen reporting on those sources by people who say they have seen the sources. Something happened in the area, be it real or fabricated, and then 70 years later, somebody took the things that they heard about that and, uh, you know, fleshed it out a bit by several hundred pages <laughs> and offered a background that has many different conflicting and likely fabricated information about what we now know as uh, the Bell Witch haunting. I mean, this is, I should say, what I love most about Ingram's book This is what people miss when they're trying to mine just the supernatural out of the text. I've heard so many podcasts about this, and I've read various books, I've read various newspaper stories, and they all, for the most part, with few exceptions, distill the story down into like a linear narrative in which there was the family, there was the witch, there was the family ruin. And I've read a number of criticisms from folks who are appreciators of the witch stuff, but feel that Ingram's Victorian prose is over the top and often takes him too long 
to get to the meat of the matter. The book is basically like some percentage of witch phenomenon and the rest of Ingram free associating about whatever is on his mind. Uh, And I'd like to argue that that is the meat of the matter. And then when we get into eyewitness testimony, it's hard to tell if these are real witnesses or they are fabricated. It's a journey, my friends. And I would argue that The rest of the text, the pieces that aren't directly about the witch, the pieces that don't get turned into the story we hear every year during spooky season or when you go on the tour for that matter, that is the meat of the matter. That is where the story lies. Is there an entire chapter dedicated to biblical readings on the supernatural? Absolutely there is. Does Ingram use that chapter as an opportunity to call out religious bigots and zealots? Of course! Is there a passage that makes me believe Ingram was a bit of a Christian communist? You bet. Let's read that passage right now. Ingram writes, This kind of zeal to please God in some other way than by the sacrifice of a contrite heart in free communion with the spirit of the Most High has characterized all ages. And down to the present time, we find men who have come in possession of great fortunes by stealth and advantage by which thousands have been impoverished, giving munificent gifts to charitable institutions in the hope of winning favor with God and gaining the praise of religious people and whose funeral orations teem with the glowing accounts of their goodness in life. That's a passage in this book about the Bell Witch. You don't really ever hear that when you hear the reporting in the Bell Witch. It's so, there's a lot here. There's a lot to digest. And all of it, it's super interesting and so much more interesting than the witch itself, in my opinion. And we'll get deeper into the details of the actual haunting in our next episode. But the details of the haunting, I feel like, again, are comparatively relatively boring. You've experienced one folk horror story. You've experienced almost all of them. And the witch, I should clarify, not getting too into the details, maybe isn't even a witch. It's just assigned as such by a bit of a false identity. Really, it's just a broad haunting. It basically snatches the clothes and shoes and blankets off people and makes wet mouth noises and sometimes shows up as a rabbit-headed dog or a dead body swinging in the woods and eventually a series of symptoms that sound like a man succumbing to maybe a neurological ailment or a great infection. And all of those things, again, are run-of-the-mill folk horror. The witch, you should know, is named Kate, even though it doesn't really have a gender that we understand. Why Kate? Because it said so at some point. And also, maybe, because the witch was the spirit of Kate Batts. That's what a lot of people were saying at some point, but that's probably definitely not true because Kate outlived John. But Kate was a big brassy broad and she scared the shit out of people of good stock and maybe, just maybe, the witch was actually some of Kate's black magic, like some proxy witch stuff. And it is said that Kate had it out for John because somewhere along the line, the two had a business dealing gone wrong. But Kate was well recognized, despite all of her eccentricities, as a person uh, in relatively good standing with the church who is full of the Holy Spirit. 
So now I bet you're wondering, is there a whole chapter about this big, intimidating lady named Kate and about her and her family and how they're described as kind of trashy and about how she supposedly sat on somebody while at church and how her mass and her spirit helped expedite the departure of evil spirits from a fellow churchgoer, you know, an exorcism by ass. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to report that there is exactly that despite reveling in this 70-year-old drama and gossip and explaining how many thought it had to do with Kate because, again, of that bad business dealing, it probably was not Kate. Ingram's exploration is again about how these good, God-loving, golden people are ultimately done wrong by a bad spirit. In doing so, Ingram spends a lot of time meditating on Christianity itself and about how no matter how good they are or how reverently they serve God, shit always seems to end up hitting the fan, doesn't it? And that's resonant, is it not? That's what horror is for, and I'm a major appreciator of that genre. It reminds us that no matter how good we've been, at some point that other shoe is going to drop, and we're going to find ourselves in the middle of a big fucked up mess. In a lot of ways, Ingram's book is ultimately about some of Tennessee's early white settlers and the hardships they encountered and the fears they lived with. And in that way, he's saying over and over, these are good people. These are good people. These are good people. We are of good people. But that's the thing, you know? It turns out it's not that simple. The most obvious of the Bell's sins is that they were holding slaves. And it's not difficult to argue that this is not a super Christ-like thing to do. Ingram's imagining of the ghost, again, without proof of the supposed family testimony he cites, we're left believing that the lion's share of the narrative is Ingram's alone. And that narrative, regarding the ghost in particular, is specifically very racist. The ghost hates how slaves smell. And it's cruel about this. According to the text, quote, the witch manifested a strong aversion for the Negro, often remarking, I hate the smell of an epithet. The scent makes me sick. The witch chases slaves and commonly uses epithets to describe them. And even says, were it not on one occasion for the intervention of old Luce, Lucy Bell, who the ghost was known to love, uh, were it not for Luce's intervention, it would have murdered some of the slaves. It is said that the witch hated John the most, but at one point, John was reprimanding a slave named Harry. Details of the reprimand are not really offered so that we can keep in our minds that John is in the best standing. But the witch tells John who the witch hates. Never mind, old Jack. The witch calls John Jack. Don't fret. I will attend to the rascal. And then the witch beats Harry and promises to be more convincing the next time if Harry ever again proves to be derelict in duty. And when you read the fervor with which the demonic force hated and was violent against black people and think, holy shit, I don't think I've ever really thought about a racist ghost. It becomes easy to forget that the Bells and Whites broadly, were the actual drivers of horror against those they held captive and controlled with personal, private, and state violence. 
Maybe there was a racist ghost. Maybe there wasn't. But there were very definitely people haunted by the horrors of the day. And the Bells, like many of their brethren, were perpetrators of this horror. Ingram is never quite able to access this grim irony. He's too caught up in setting the scene. It's worth noting, and we'll get into some of the creepier aspects of this narrative, aspects that go beyond the supernatural next week, but it's worth noting that at some point Ingram, by way of the supposed family manuscript, refers to Anki, or Ank, one of the slaves the witch is supposed to have tormented, as a, quote, well-developed, buxom African girl, some 18 years of age, a real Negro, so to speak, exuberant with that repugnant aromatic. One wonders how much of this can be chalked up to Ingram's trying to capture the attitudes of yesteryear, and how much is a projection of the racist and evidently libidinous, let's say lascivious, attitudes of Ingram himself. And beyond the horrors of slaveholding, the arrival of European settlers had already begun to pose an existential threat to the native tribes that were living in Middle Tennessee, and putting a strain on food sources. General Andrew Jackson makes an appearance in Ingram's telling of the Bell Witch story, though it's largely agreed upon by pretty much everybody that this is not a thing that happened. Jackson would go on to represent Tennessee in the U.S. House. He'd serve as a justice on the Tennessee Supreme Court. And as president of the United States, he'd signed the Indian Removal Act, creating the death march known as the Trail of Tears, in which about one in four of those Cherokee forced off of their land had perished. And this is not to be hyperbolic, but we forget this because almost all of our historical focus is on this side of the Second World War. But these were policies that Hitler looked to for inspiration when developing his policies of ethnic cleansing and eradication and genocide. Behold the good God-fearing Christians put upon by these spooky ghouls. Behold the spooky ghouls who come to believe that they are themselves not ghouls at all, but the victims of some other spooky ghouls. I bring all this up because in what may be one of the earliest popular accounts of the trope, one preceding its heyday of the Amityville horror in Stephen King books in Poltergeist by nearly a century, it is said within Ingram's narrative that perhaps the witch originates from an Indian burial site, and it's even suggested as much by the witch at one point before the witch takes it back. There were plenty of sites in the region, including one located above what is now known as the Bell Witch Cave. John's son, Betsy's brother, Drew, is said to have gone into the grounds looking for relics of value, walked away with no relics, but came away with a piece of a skull that had been buried. He brings it to the house. For some reason, I can't quite understand. He throws it at the fireplace. It smashes. And in theory, a tooth fell from that collision and went under the floorboard of the house. And it is said at some point, the witch is looking for a lost tooth. And then it says, JK, basically, I am not kidding. Uh, I was just joking. I'm not actually a spirit looking for a tooth from a local burial ground. But we have here white slaveholding settlers encroaching upon native territory who are framed as very, very unquestionably good people based on the reporting. In fact, they are the ones who are victims 
victimized by the native ghosts. It all has a bit of an exonerating effect on the fact that at the end of the day, those here who are described as haunted all shared guilt as collaborators in their own holding of slaves or upholding of systems that supported that and occupation of land belonging to tribes driven to starvation, disease, and death. Alternately, I asked my friend and my co-host on another podcast, Sarah Marshall, about this, and she said, the entire country is a burial ground. So it comforts us to focus on some parts as if they're the burial grounds. And the kind of original sin we imagine creating a haunting, that's really interesting. You know, for white folks in particular, the whole country is built in a so-called Indian burial ground. And you know, it's not the spooky, scary power of indigenous magic that we need to fear. That read is charitably very racist. It's the spooky, scary power of recognition of how and why many of those bodies were put into the ground that creates mm, anxieties that take many forms, fantastic and otherwise. There's something about white folks finding themselves haunted by messing around with the sanctity of those who came before, the folks that we forcibly replaced. Speaking of the horror story, serving as an evocation of an exoneration from the colonizer's anxiety, remember how the witch's name was Kate? And a number of folks thought it was tied to Kate Batts, a woman who may or may not have held a grudge against John Bell because of a business deal gone sour. And how maybe Batts cursed Bell, a curse which drove him to his death eventually, not before he was excommunicated from his church. And remember how I said earlier, that John's, quote, honesty of purpose may have also been up for question? Well, it turns out that he did have a sour dealing with a Bats, but it was with Benjamin Bats, Kate's brother-in-law, not Kate. And the dealing was one in which John may have charged excessive interest on the purchase of a young girl who was enslaved. Child trafficking, as it were. The dispute was handled at the church and resulted in Bell's eventual excommunication, not because the church saw slavery as abhorrent, but because they felt the shady business dealings of an elder made them look bad. This is the bad business dealing in question. But the story that bubbles to the top of the myth is one in which a spurned, strong, scary woman, unrelated to said transaction, was likely behind the black magic that led to this poor, good, upstanding man's undoing. Weird. Sometimes it turns out, hey, look, over there, it's a very scary monster, is an honest exclamation. And sometimes it turns out it's a diversion. And sometimes our obsession with that diversion is an exoneration of those involved, those who recorded and perpetuated the story, and often ourselves. Again, the way we tell our stories often says as much, if not more, about us than the stories themselves. All right, that's enough for this installment. Tune in next time for some true, honest-to-goodness gold from Ingram's text, the authenticated history of the famous bell witch, the wonder of the 19th century and unexplained phenomenon of the Christian era, the mysterious talking goblin that terrorized the west end of Robertson County, Tennessee, tormenting John Bell to his death. The story of Betsy Bell, her lover, and the haunting sphinx. Oh. 
before we go, you should know that Benjamin Batts, the man whose accusations led John to being excommunicated from his own church, he would himself be excommunicated from that same church five years after Bell's death. His crime? He stole some bacon. Thanks so much to Cameron Davidson for producing this episode, to Knack Factory for underwriting the effort, and to We Own This Town for distributing it. Thank you so much for hanging around, to Sam Sharp for the photograph we used as today's episode art. You can find Sam on Instagram at Lady Long Limbs. We'll be releasing a zine about the Bell Witch and other Tennessee occult odds and ends soon. Stay tuned for that. I appreciate y'all hanging out with us. I'm Alex Steed. This is Nashville Demystified. <laughs>